0: Romans chapter 8 is one of the high watermarks of the scriptures. What an amazing passage. What a great passage uh, to finish my, uh, my preaching ministry as your senior pastor. We're looking at Romans 8 and um, there's no way we can do justice to these amazing 39 verses. But my title, my summary of this is God's Gifts to Christians Living in a Fallen World. Now that's a long title. It could... Be kind of puritanical. You know, they have really long titles on their books. Uh, God's gifts to Christians living in a fallen world. And I hope by the end of the message you feel like we have at least uh, teased a little bit of the content that's there. And there is hardly a more encouraging passage of scripture in the entire Bible. And it comes an appropriate time in the book of Romans as we've been studying. I want to do just a quick review of where we've been. I'm giving a quick and dirty outline. That means it's not entirely accurate. We're not taking a lot of time, but just where have we been and how does it get us ready for what we're doing today? Romans 1 through 3, we essentially have condemnation. Remember, the Apostle Paul has said that all of us are sinners. He says there are pagan sinners. There are idolaters, Gentiles. And uh, they have come short of the glory of God. And then there are religious sinners, the Jews. Uh, Although they have the law, they are as sinful as anyone. So then chapter 3 says all of us are sinners. Uh, All of us have gone our own way. There is no one who is seeking after God. No one is doing good. So he leaves us in condemnation, but he does that wounding so he can bring the balm of the gospel in Romans 4 and 5. Romans 4 and 5, you have, especially in chapter 4, the end of chapter 3, you have... Really the encapsulation of the greatest teaching on uh, justification that we have anywhere in Scripture. That we are saved not by works, not by the law, not by our effort, but we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of all he has done on our behalf. So we studied what it means to be saved in Romans 4 and 5. Then Romans 6 through 8 talks about our, our sanctification. I'm using a lot of Christian words today. All right. Justification means how can a lost person... Uh, be forgiven and be right with God. Sanctification means how can a flawed Christian grow? How can we mature? How can we become more holy and less sinful, more like Christ and less like our old selves? And Romans 6, 7, and 8 teaches that. Now, let's lean into that a little bit further and and break that down. I think it will help us uh, be ready for what's coming in Romans 8. Romans 6 basically tells us that obedience is possible. Should we continue sinning so that grace may abound? If, if we're saved by the work of Christ and not by our effort, then maybe we shouldn't try at all. Even as Christians, maybe we should just keep on sinning. The more I sin, the better God looks because he can forgive me again and again. Paul says, God forbid. May it never be. That's not the way Christianity works. He says, obedience is possible because you haven't only been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, justification, But you have been inseparably united to Christ. You're a different person. So you're united to his death, and therefore you don't have to continue sinning. You're united to his resurrection, and therefore you can walk in newness of life. He says that obedience is possible, even necessary. So although you are saved by faith, all through grace, all the gift of God, you are saved in order to work, in order to serve the Lord as a Christian. Obedience is possible, then we come to Romans 7, and uh, many of us feel like Romans 7 is kind of our biography. This is kind of where we are living now. In Romans 7, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about his attempts to obey and grow, and he very candidly says, I feel like the things I want to do, I can't do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do habitually, so I don't want to sin, but I sin I want to obey, but I don't obey, and I'm frustrated. And he comes to this exasperation where he says, who will deliver me? Who is going to help me? Verse 24 of chapter 7, wretched man, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It sounds as if he is asking uh, a rhetorical question. Who can help me stop sinning as a Christian? But it's not a hopeless question. It actually is setting us up for what is coming. So verse 25, he says, thanks be to God. The answer is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. I still need help. And then we come to Romans 8. I describe Romans 8 this way. Victory is certain. The Christian life is difficult. difficult. Uh, Tom Farrell, we used to call him Double Barrel Farrell, uh, used to say the Christian life is not a ball field, it's a battlefield. It's hard. You're, You're fighting against the devil, you're fighting against the world, but maybe your chief enemy is fighting against you. Your own temptation, your own propensity to sin, your own selfishness. I think no one has... Uh, captured this idea in, in a lyrical form, in poetry, uh, better than one of my favorite English poets, and that is Christina Rossetti. Uh, her, her poem is actually um, taking part of Romans 8 as its namesake. It's called Who Shall Deliver Me? It's a, it's a hint. This is about Romans 7. See if you don't relate to this. God strengthened me to bear myself, the heaviest weight of all to bear, inalienable weight of care. All others are are outside myself. I lock the door and bar them out, the turmoil, tedium, gad about. I lock my door upon myself and bar them out, but who shall wall self from myself? Most loathed of all. If I could once lay down myself and start self-purged upon the race that all must run, death runs apace. If I could set aside myself and start with lightened heart upon the road by all men overgone, And then this is the most famous part. God hardened me against myself. This coward with pathetic voice who craves for ease and rest and joys. Myself, arch-traitor to myself. My hollowest friend. My deadliest foe. My clog whatever road I go. That's somber. Ah, but there's one last line. Yet one there is, can curb myself, can roll the strangling load from me, break off the yoke, and set me free. What Christina Rossetti just did is transition from Romans 7 to Romans 8. So now together, let's read Romans chapter 8, looking for this idea. This this problem that we all relate to. We sing in a song by Andrew Peterson, do you feel that the world's broken? And we answer, we do. It is broken. We're broken. I'm broken. I'm tired of me. So how are we supposed to survive life on a fallen, sick sick planet? The answer of Romans 8, I think kind of in a nutshell, is this. God has given to every Christian the very things we need to not only survive but to thrive in a fallen world. We are not left to ourselves. We're not abandoned. Uh, we're not left skirmishing in Romans 7. We have the the balm, the grace, the help of Romans chapter 8. So we read that together, and because it's 39 verses, I don't want anyone standing up and passing out. Uh, why don't you stay seated today? And we will respect the Lord as we read uh, the scriptures. Romans chapter 8. Most of this sermon will be me reading the chapter and then I'll make a couple of notations Romans 8 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. ...knows what is the mind of the Spirit... ...because the Spirit intercedes for the saints... ...according to the will of God. We know that those who love God... ...we know that for those who love God... ...all things work together... ...for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... ...for those whom He foreknew... ...He also predestined... ...to be conformed to the image of His Son... ...in order that He might be the firstborn... ...among many brothers. Those whom He predestined... ...He also called... Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or (coughs) nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all all the day long. in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We begin with no condemnation. We end the chapter with nothing able to separate us from the love of God. What a great text. We could spend the next year of sermons studying this text. Uh, trying to do it in, in one message uh, is folly, But at least we can get an overview and understand the blessings that God has given us. He hasn't left us alone. He hasn't left us to to bang our heads against the wall of Romans chapter 7 and frustration with temptation and our own sin. He's given us provision. First of these, you see at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, is God has given every Christian his undeserved pardon. This harkens back to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5. God has given to us undeserved pardon. So, although we struggle with sin, although we do what we hate and and we don't do what we ought to do, Romans 8 begins by telling us that because of Christ, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great text. Romans 8, 1 is is really the, the lifeline for believers. We face no condemnation And as we've learned, it's it's not that God is merely wiping the record clean. He's not just expunging our sins. He's not ignoring our sins. He can't do that. He could not justify us and be just if he ignored sin. So how could he say to us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Or John chapter 8. How could Jesus speak to an adulteress and say, neither do I condemn you? How can he do that? The answer is, he didn't condemn her because he would be condemned in her place. There is no condemnation for you or for me because Jesus Christ was condemned in our place. Condemnation comes. But in God's mercy, God condemned himself as though a sinner so that he might pardon us. Our sin and our condemnation were born by the Lord Jesus, and so uh, the lyrics of the song we were reminded of today by Lance Flower: "No condemnation now I dread; Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. How can you be bold as sinful as?" As weak as you are, as Romans 7 as you are, how can you be bold in your approach to God? And the answer is, there's no condemnation for you. It's been taken by Jesus. He's given you his righteousness. In the passage, this, this entire chapter does this, but it emphasizes what we learned during the Trinity series a couple years ago, that we are saved by the entire Godhead. The Father saves, and Jesus saves, and the Spirit saves, and they're all here working. So there's no condemnation if we're in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit has set us free through Christ. And God has done it, verse 3, through the law. Eventually, it's going to say, not only are we pardoned, we're actually adopted. So the Son of God has made it possible for the enemies of God To be the children of God. To call him Abba, Father. And the one who inspires us and gives us courage to do that is the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit save us. We've said it a variety of ways, but the Father authored our salvation. He he came up with it. He devised it. The Son accomplished it. The Son is the one who came to earth and lived a perfect life on our behalf and then died a terrible death on our behalf, and then rose again on our behalf. It is the Spirit, especially in this text. It is the Spirit who takes the plan of the Father, the accomplished work of the Son, and He applies it to the heart of every Christian. We're saved by works of the Spirit. Now, don't be confused. Jesus died for us. Jesus suffered for us. We're not saying that the Father shed His blood or the Spirit shed His blood. No, Jesus saves but all of them are working together in, in this great collaboration, in, in this, great, this great covenant together so that we might be born again. God has given every Christian his undeserved pardon. There is no condemnation for us. The passage goes on, and I'm summarizing um, I'm, I'm summarizing insufficiently. But summarizing nonetheless, God has given every Christian his indwelling spirit. We've talked about the spirit, and and we have here this discussion of this battle that rages. It reminds us of Galatians 5. What Paul was talking about, that the tension in his heart, the tension in his conscience, is that you are, are fighting your flesh, you're fighting the residue of your old man... So you're still prone to wander. You're still prone to sin. But you're now indwelt by the Spirit of God. I said a few weeks ago, you are now a duplex. As a Christian, you're a duplex. You you have your flesh living in you. And and you're very aware of it. You say, I'm not aware of it. Then, Then you're not resisting it. Okay, your flesh is tempting you. But now you have a new nature. The Spirit of God has come to take up residence in you. He lives in you. And he is in the process of changing you. He, he doesn't only pardon you. He doesn't only bring forgiveness of sins. But he wants to bring freedom from sin. He wants you to walk in newness of life. And he actually enables you to do it. Remember all that, the Latin sentences we considered a month ago maybe? That, that Adam was able to sin or able not to sin. Once he fell, then then all of humanity was not able not to sin until you become a Christian, until you have new life. And now you're you're in a state similar to Adam's. You can sin, but you can also refuse to sin. By the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, you can obey. The Spirit helps in that way. So he resists the flesh and assists us until the day comes when finally we don't have to deal with temptation we don't have to deal with our flesh. We put it all off. We're in the presence of the Lord. Again, there's, there's way more meat here than I can even pretend to adequately cover today. God has given every Christian his indwelling spirit. Every Christian. Every Christian. If you don't have the spirit of God dwelling in you, you're not a Christian. Okay, I remember witnessing to someone uh, when I was in grad school, working in a warehouse, and there was a brother in Christ who was uh, Pentecostal. We disagreed on a lot, but we agreed on what Christ has accomplished and the need of salvation. And the two of us, this this young, you know, starched Bob Jones fundamentalist, and this smooth talking, emotive Pentecostal. And together, we are evangelizing a coworker, And eventually, the guy prayed and professed faith in Christ. So, so the two of us labored together to explain the gospel, to bring him salvation. He, he prayed and asked for forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus. And then, as soon as he said amen from his sinner's prayer, my, Pentecostals, my, my Pentecostal friend said, Now! You got the Son of God. We need to pray that you'll get the Spirit of God. Okay, okay, we've had such good partnership here. Time out. You you don't get the Son of God and then later hope to get the Spirit of God. In fact, this passage will say, if the Spirit of God is not in you, you're not a Christian. The Spirit indwells every Christian. And and that's where this isn't a study on pneumatology, but... If you're a Christian, the Spirit takes up residence in you. You may resist Him. You may grieve Him. You may offend Him, but He's still there. Okay, think of it this way it's like your flesh is in the driver's seat, and He's been moved to the passenger seat, and and you're living like the world, but He's still there. He's not going to leave. What, What needs to happen is not only for Him to be present, but for Him to be in control. So you are indwelt by the Spirit, if you're a Christian. Indwelt is such a fancy word. He lives in you. If you're a Christian, he lives in you. But the struggle is for you to submit to him, to allow him to control you, to be controlled or filled with the Spirit. And even that language sounds so confusing. Filled with the Spirit sounds like you're getting more of him. That's not the right idea Filled with the Spirit actually means he's getting more of you. He's there, but now you're, you're, you're following his promptings and suggestions. You're living in his power. You're resisting sin. And you're not doing it by your own willpower and effort. You're doing it by the power of God through his transforming Holy Spirit who is in you. The Spirit is the key. This is transformational truth. The Spirit is the key to Christian living. I mean, Scripture memory is necessary. Prayer is necessary. But you need divine enablement. And when the Scripture talks about an obedient Christian life or a victorious Christian life or a growing Christian, again and again and again and again, it emphasizes the Spirit of God. Now, we conservative Christians are so reactionary to Pentecostalism that we almost act like the Holy Spirit isn't there, as though we weren't present. We don't know how desperately we need him. If you feel like I am just running in the sand, I cannot get any traction in my Christian life, you you don't need some seminar. You, You need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit In your life, He's in you, He's given you life, and He wants to change you. In the past, He is the very source of Christian life. He lives in every true Christian, as we've seen. When I say He's the source of Christian life, when we talk about someone being born again, to be born again is you've been born once physically, for me, coming up on 50 years ago. But then you need to be born again. You need to be born spiritually. You need life. And it's the Spirit of God who brings life. He's the one who causes what we call regeneration. To be born again is to be born of the Spirit. He takes your dead soul, and the Spirit of God brings you life. And it's a miracle. The Father planned it. Jesus died for you, rose again for you. But it is the Spirit who comes and gives your dead soul life. It's like a Genesis 1 and 2 miracle that he takes a dead thing and he breathes into it the breath of life. The Spirit of God does that. And then presently, he is the secret. It's not even a secret. The Bible talks about it so much. He's he's the silver bullet. He's the one. He's the key to resisting the flesh and living a life of joy-filled obedience. Joy-filled. When you're walking in the Spirit... Your obedience is not drudgery. It's, it's not something that is miserable for you. The Spirit of God changes you. Please hear me. The Christian life is not an overbearing list of do's and don'ts from a killjoy God who wants to make you miserable. The Christian life, empowered by the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not primarily a list of do's and don'ts. It is Him changing your character and then changing your very conduct of life. Even the way you feel, the way you, you express yourself to others. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy you want joy? Don't you want peace? Instead of all this conflict with others, conflict with yourself? The Spirit of God is the source of all of that. It's the Spirit of God who actually is changing you to be more like Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we grow from glory to glory into the image of Christ, and we, we do that as the Spirit of God is working. The Spirit of God and future, he is the security for our ultimate triumph and reward as the heirs of God. I should be having you look down at your text and then explain it and look down together. To... It's hopeless. We can't do that today. We, we can't get through all that today. Go home and feast on Romans chapter 8. But it's the Spirit of God who is doing these things. So, he's not only changing us, but verse 12 says... Verse 12 says that, that as we are changed, no longer are we debtors, but we are to live as heirs. Verse 12, so that, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5, the works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him. He is the security for our ultimate triumph and reward. Now, I've emphasized the word heirs. We are heirs of God Almighty. Heirs means that we have privileges. We have an inheritance coming. But but what I stepped over is a more tender term. We're not only heirs. I mean, children, my, my four daughters and now my son. You're my heirs. Do you know what that means? When I die, you get everything I possess. You don't look like you're, you know, at all impressed by that. (laughs) You don't get much, but whatever I have is yours. But better than being heirs is you're my daughters. You're my son. You're my family. So we're heirs of God. But it's not only about the inheritance that is yet to come. We get to call the God of the universe Abba, this tender intimate term the spirit prompts us to cry out to the one who should be our judge and executioner we call out to him not even as our master we call him our father it's astounding behold what amazing love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of god and that is what we are the spirit of god accomplishes that in our hearts And he does make us heirs, and and that will get us ready for this next amazing section of Romans chapter 8. We are heirs. We have an inheritance. We have a future. Millard Erickson has a systematic theology book. Uh, Most of my theology books were written by Presbyterians. I believe this one is written by a Baptist. As the Holy Spirit is the point at which the Trinity becomes personal to the believer. We generally think of the Father as transcendent and far off in heaven. Similarly, the Son seems far removed in history. And in a sense, the Son is removed. He's left. But the Holy Spirit is active within the lives of believers. He is resident within us. The Holy Spirit is the particular person of the Trinity through whom the entire triune Godhead works in us. You know, we're very mindful of the Father and the Son, but the Spirit is the one through whom they are doing their work. And we neglect Him to our own shame and helplessness. God has given us His Spirit. So he's given us pardon. He's given us his spirit to live in us, to change us, to grow us. Along with that, he's given us this next section. He has given every Christian his incomparable glory. He's given us his glory. You say, well, I feel like we don't have that yet. Well, you, you don't. You know, if you're glorified, I am highly disappointed. All right. But it is so certain that it is spoken of as though it's already been resolved. And so we're going to talk about all of the struggles that we experience now. I'm going to go ahead and read this entire passage. Again, verse 18. He just talked about suffering with the Lord. And then he says, and, and this is beautiful and it's so hopeful. In a broken world, this is so hopeful. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, which are severe, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, future. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Adam. You know, Adam is the one who broke everything. Creation got dragged into it. So Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All all creation is going to be redeemed by the second Adam when Jesus comes. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Childbirth says, there's pain now, but there's, there's a reward coming. It will be worth it, he says. Be worth it when we see Jesus. Verse 23 Not only the creation, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we still groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You get that? Christians who are indwelt by the Spirit and longing for. For the final redemption, when sin is dead, when we get a new body, we still live in this world groaning. Christians groan. But we groan with the hope that Jesus is going to set it all straight. He says, that hasn't happened yet. It's hope. It's future. Otherwise, we wouldn't be waiting and hoping. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Remarkable. The Spirit himself is groaning with us. It's, it's empathy. It's not powerless. But as we groan in the travail of life on this planet, he groans with us, and he actually turns those groans into prayer. So here we're told that the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. Later we're told that the Son is interceding on our behalf. How encouraging is that? There is this divine prayer meeting in the the triune God. Both the Son and the Spirit are making requests to the Father on our behalf. Then he says, all of this suffering, let's get back to that idea of suffering that was introduced to us, verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things, hard things, suffering things, we know that all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, and and here's how sure your coming glory is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son by the working of his spirit, in order that he, Jesus, might be the first fruit among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And in God's mind, it's done. Your glorification is that settled. God exists outside of time anyway, it's settled. God has given every Christian his incomparable glory. He shares it with us. He will share it with us. I'm not saying that glory is now. Suffering now, glory awaits. The cross now, the crown later. But the passage tells us that our suffering now is real. And it's intense. I love that scripture doesn't deny how hard the world is. I'm so weary of false teachers who talk as though God's will for your life is, is to just kind of skate through life with with ease. If you really had enough faith, you wouldn't have financial struggles, or you wouldn't have cancer, or you wouldn't have other problems. That is so false and so cruel. Now, in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus says, they hated me. They're gonna hate you. It's rough. It Says creation groans. Last night we had another perfect illustration. I've I've told you of a time on Mother's Day we're watching Animal Planet, and there's all these cute little lion cubs, and I'm like, you know, my my daughters are are young toddlers, early elementary. I thought let's watch a nature show, and and then and then the head, you know, what, what do you call the the uh, Chief Lion, the oh, I'm missing the word anyway, the, the, the king of the jungle, the, the lion that is the alpha died. a new one took over. and the show explains the first thing that, that the new head of that uh, lion group does is kill all the cubs so that he can have his own breed, his own children. So now we have all these animals dying and my girls on Mother's Day are there in tears watching these animals be crushed. Uh, I'm reminded of that because last night they're watching nature show again and there's a snake and he catches a mouse or something and, and we watched him eat it all. And creation groans, ladies. That's the world we live in. It is red of tooth and claw. But it's not only creation that groans, Christians groan. We feel it. In fact, that Andrew Peterson song we sing is all creation groaning. It is. We are. Then even the Spirit of God groans with us. My understanding of that is, as I said, it's empathy. We groan, and because of His love for us, because of His ministry in us, He's groaning as well. But the difference is, our groanings are confused, His groanings instead are are divine. And he takes our groaning and he translates it into exactly the right request. He takes our confused, broken-hearted groans and he turns them into just the right request according to the will of God. The Spirit of God is like Rumpelstiltskin, who can take straw and turn it to gold. He takes our tears and turns them into the perfect prayers, and he offers them on our behalf. How encouraging is that? Our suffering now is real and it's intense. The Bible says so from cover to cover. But our future glory is just as real and even more intense. The future is so great that even the suffering of this world doesn't compare to it. Our ultimate salvation, and that is when we get new bodies, and when, when the curse is finally reversed, all of that is still future. And in the meantime, our ongoing sanctification, Romans 8, 28, and 29. Our ongoing sanctification through which we're becoming like Jesus through productive hardship, it will end in glory. We're becoming like Jesus through productive hardship. I I labored for just the right word to to modify hardship. It's not just hardship. It's not just all things work together for good to those who love God. It's actually saying that Your suffering is not pointless, it's not wasted, it's not accidental, it's not random. But in the hands of a loving Father, even your suffering, the suffering of this present world, is being used to conform you to the image of Christ. So verse 29 says, it's not that all things will work out in the end, or it's not that everything will get better. He says, the pain in your life, as terrible as it is, and it's terrible. But he's using it to conform you to the image of Jesus. That's how much God wants to grow your spirit. If it, requires, if it requires poor physical health to give you great spiritual health, to make you more like his son, then he'll do that. But it ends in glory. God has given every Christian his incomparable glory. And then we end with it's amazing. This amazing climax. God has given every Christian his unfailing love. He says, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And furthermore, who cares who's against us if God is for us? It doesn't even matter. It's irrelevant who's on the other side. You know, people oppose you. It doesn't matter if God is for you. Satan hates you. It doesn't matter if God is for you. You struggle with your own flesh. It doesn't matter because even when you're against you, God is for you. God is for us and that's enough. So everything else is irrelevant. Verse 31 is so beautiful. He says, he who gave us his son, how will he not with him give us all things? Christians are, are so fickle. We, we play these mind games and we say, man, I just, I don't know if God even cares about me. I don't know if God even loves me. If God loves me, then why am I so discouraged? If God loves me, why are, are my circumstances like this? If, if God loves me, why do I have illness or, or a sick spouse or a sick child? If, if God loves me, why, and you fill in the blank, And verse 31 takes the air out of all of that. It says, he gave you his son. If he's given you his son, do you really think he's holding out on you? If he gave you his son, do you really think that he's not generous and liberal when he gives to you? How will he not give us everything else? He gave the best that he could. I love the chorus, oh, how he loves you and me. We come to that phrase, it's simple but it's beautiful. He gave his life. What more could he give? I mean, what will it take to prove that he loves you? He gave his son. And if he's given you his son, then he's going to give you everything that's good for you. He gave us his son. So what could he possibly withhold from you're wondering if God loves you. All right, I, I get it. I get it. I wonder it. I get it. Romans 7. But stop looking at your circumstances and look at the cross. You look at the cross, you cannot doubt the love of God for you. He gave you his son. He's going to ask, who can bring anything against us? Who can accuse us? And he says, it doesn't matter who accuses us. Because God is the one who justified us. So the world may accuse you, but it doesn't matter if you've been justified by God. You may condemn yourself with ongoing guilt. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. But it doesn't care if God has justified you. In fact, it's Jesus who died for you, who rose for you. And then he mentions again that Jesus is actively praying for you right now. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The only one who could do that is God. And God's the one who justifies. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if God has pardoned you and adopted you, if the Spirit indwells you, and is praying for you, if the sun has risen again, and he's praying for you, what are you worried about? What can the world do to you? He's going to say, we're more than conquerors. We are surrounded, we're enveloped by the love of God. I say, God is for us, and that's enough, God loves us, and that won't change. God's love for you won't change. It won't grow. It couldn't possibly grow. It won't diminish. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Then he throws in this quotation of Psalm 44 and verse 22. He says, you know, what's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Let me, let me tell you what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, tribulation makes me wonder. Distress makes me wonder. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. Sure, they all make me wonder. I feel like Psalm 44, For God's sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. God, if you love us, why do you let us suffer like this? He says, oh, you're misreading. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not not victims, we're victors. Because our primary existence isn't this 70 to 80 years that we're experiencing now. Our best life is later. And the Lord gives us this sustaining power. His grace is sufficient for us. His purpose for us is to be more and more like Christ. His love for us is perfect and unchanging. And he says, you know, some of you might get your heads cut off. But we're more than conquerors through the one who loved us. And the fact that you suffer doesn't mean God doesn't love you. He loved you so much, he gave you a son. He loved you so much, he's going to give you his glory. God wins. And you and I get to participate in that. So he ends now not with a question about what can separate us from the love of God. The answer was nothing. But now he ends with an affirmation. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are loved with an almighty, everlasting love. No one can pluck you from Jesus' hand. And and if they could, nobody can pluck you from the Father's hand. You are safe and secure in the love of God. Adequate treatment of Romans 8? No. But if you're a Christian, you've been given gifts, the pardon of God, the, the spirit of God, the future glory of God, and the unchanging love of God. So you don't, have to, you don't have to wander through the wilderness of Romans 7. You have the promises and, and comforts and blessings of Romans chapter 8 chiefly delivered to you through the Holy Spirit. John Owen. John Owen would write, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is one of two areas of doctrine on which everything else is built. It's actually a great... Uh, completion of our study in Romans, two areas of doctrine in which everything else is built: the giving of his son for his people, and the giving of his spirit to his people that 's Romans. God gave his son for you. God gave his spirit to you, and you 're not just trying to survive in a broken world you 're able to thrive. You have purpose. You can obey. You can serve Him with joy. You can endure persecution and hardship with hope. And all of this is because of the indwelling Spirit. And ultimately, we end here. Our hope now and always lies in Christ alone. Our hope is Christ. The Hamiltons will say, "My hope is Jesus." Our hope is Christ alone. Now. You have a pastor whose name is Chris. And over the years, there are comical typos. I've had a few times uh, where we have the lyrics on the screen. They say, in Chris alone, my hope is found. Or I run to Chris. Or occasionally, you know, I love you all, signed, Pastor Christ. Okay. Don't confuse the two. I certainly don't confuse the two. Nine years past for you uh, has been a pleasure. Much of the time. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. There are things I didn't get right. Things could have been done differently. But with God as, as my witness there was never a moment when I pointed you to me as the solution to your problems. The answer for you is not me. Never was me. You need Christ. You need a better shepherd. You need a perfect shepherd. Our hope is Jesus. That's always true, and it's it's true tomorrow, it's true the next year. Your hope isn't Pastor Joe. Don't put that pressure on him. Your hope is the chief shepherd the Lord Jesus. So I want to finish today by singing in Christ alone my hope is found. Not in you not in me, not in any other person. Our hope is in Christ. So let's affirm that together as we complete our time. Thank you Lord for your word. I spoke too much and yet not enough to mine the treasures of this passage. But I thank you for it. I thank you for the gifts that you've given to us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for pardon. Thank you for future glory. I pray, Lord, for your blessing on us as your people. I pray for your blessing on this church as a whole. That we will live day to day dependent on Christ alone. And, oh, Lord, I pray for any who come in. They haven't yet surrendered to Jesus. They haven't yet put their faith in him. Turning from their own way, their own pride, their own rebellion, their own morality, their own goodness. Repenting of all of that and trusting Jesus. If there's anyone here who's not yet saved, save them through faith in Christ alone today. Spirit of God, accomplish all the things we've been talking about. Accomplish that in every individual heart. And the glory will go to you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.